This is a paid advertisement. Attention metrics are part of the zeitgeist, and for good reason. The industry needs a better quality measure than viewability. According to the IAB, 90% of advertisers plan to use attention metrics this year, so there's a good chance they're on your radar. If you're part of this forward-thinking majority, it's time to familiarize yourself with the Adelaide's AU. Endorsed by Adweek as the attention economy's most widely recognized metric, AU is available in nearly every DSP, SSP, and ad network. Learn more at adelaidemetrics.com. That's adelaidemetrics.com. Welcome to the Market Texture Podcast. This is Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Dave Clark, the CEO, new CEO of TripleLift, formerly head of Freewheel, formerly president of Weather Channel, the uh, amazing resume, been around the block, formerly my boss at Freewheel, so he has that distinction and survived it. Dave, thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited to talk to you about your new job and things. Uh, first, just some housekeeping. I wanted to let everybody know there's a really interesting interview on Architecture TV with BitSwitch. They have a new product out called LightSwitch, which is like a traffic shaping product. Um, and it's interesting for anyone in sort of the DSP, SSP business. Also, wanted to let people know, a lot of people are not aware that Marketexture TV has monthly subscriptions now. Originally, when we launched, it was only annual. So if your uh, credit limit at your company is a little lower, do the monthly subscription. It's definitely worth it. All right, let's jump in. So Dave, congrats on the new job. What is TripleLift nowadays? Well, it's funny because, you know, when I, I've always admired TripleLift. Um, so it's funny that you say nowadays because there's been so much change in the space. And I think tri TripleLift is an SSP. Let's start there. But... As I got to learn sort of details of the company, it's a different kind of SSP. The sort of heritage of the company uh, of TripleLift is native advertising. You know, the founders going back 10 years, sort of, you know, a classic sort of entrepreneur, founder, you may have crossed paths with them. Yeah, yeah, I know them really well. Yeah, we're both next. Yeah, brilliant guys, Eric Berry and Arlene and, and Sean Zachariah. You know, they had this view that just like, you know, standard IAB banner ads were not effective and really not serving anybody. And they wanted to kind of create better advertising and they really leaned in. And I think we're like an er really an early pioneer in native advertising and kind of created the category and in particular figured out, you know, native advertising is fundamentally non-standard ad units, but that have far higher performance and I think work better for the publisher, better economics, they work better for the advertiser. But the challenge is that because they're non-standard, they're hard to scale. And the kind of secret sauce of TripleLift is they figured out how to scale it and create a lot of automation. And today, as I kind of thought about the company, native advertising is, you know, really kind of at the core of a lot of trends in the industry. You know, there's a flight, there's sort of a shift back to quality. There's a shift of dollars to retail media where I think native advertising and the kind of the capabilities that companies that built native advertising kind of SSPs you know, really apply there and can help in particular native uh, retail media companies sort of manage their offsite advertising. So I thought it was a really interesting company to kind of throw my hat in with. And, you know, I'm in nine months now and it's, it's been super fun. 
so you said you're an SSB, and then you said you're native advertising, and I think what gets people confused is the, the, those sort of circles in the Venn diagram overlap, but there's also a lot of other stuff. So there's an SSP for standard advertising. You're investing a lot in connected TV, in retail media. You acquired a data company. Is it as simple as, as uh, making it out, or is it complicated? It is as simple as you make it out. As, as I've learned, the company, you know, it's the company for had a period of time where it focused only on native advertising, and then started to add other formats, and now sells everything. But as it's moved to these different categories, I mean, we offer, you know, dis, you can buy display from us just like you can buy from any other SSP, right? And, you know, standard 300 by 250 banner ads. This is more of a commodity format and the industries at a point now are basically competing on price. I think though that what Triple Lift has done and what we'll continue to do is when, when there is the opportunity, we'll take that same native playbook and apply it. So we have created custom formats in CTV as a way for CTV publishers to differentiate. And then... We're also focused, I mentioned, on retail media, although very early days for everyone. And there too, I think actually are a lot of our kind of existing native capabilities lend themselves to helping those companies. And there's been a lot of enthusiasm around it. And then when you get to the icing on the cake for me was, you know, well before I joined, Triple Lift bought OnePlus X, which is a first party DMP built by some ex-Googlers, a brilliant team of 50, you know, data scientists out of Zurich. And the idea there was to bake in a solution for our publisher base that enabled publishers to monetize their cookie-less audience. And it all kind of, it also just drives more impact. So what we're seeing there is really interesting. You know, if you talk to the big web publishers, they'll tell you their number one problem is that they're monetizing half of their audience at $5 plus, and those are the, you know, Chrome Android users. And pretty much everyone else, like the other half, mostly Safari, but not just Safari, they're monetizing it 10 cents. You know, we're there already, right? Right. And what sort of the magic of, of the OnePlus X of what we now call triple lift audiences is publishers can monetize all of it. And that's through uh, sending signals on the bidstream that's a, that say this user is interested in sports or, or this user is a high value user in some way using first party data. Yeah, so like you know, the founder of OnePlus X, Jurgen Galler, call really doesn't call it a DMP; he calls it like a data generation engine. So it's you know, you're taking a a little bit of first party seed data, which most publishers have, and then modeling out the rest of them based on you know, not to be all like buzzwordies, but it is true, machine learning and AI and all that. And like, I'll just say, hey, because I'm sure this question is coming. There are a lot of solutions like this out in the market for a claim <laughs> claim to do this, right? Ari, I know you well enough to know that question is coming. Like, what what makes this different? I mean, what really makes it different is the results it delivers. And I think a lot of these platforms are not scaled yet. We're just at that stage development. We really like the results that we're seeing, and we just got to go and sort of tell it to the marketplace. So one editorial note for anyone who's confused, uh, OnePlus X is a totally different company from X plus one, even though there's a saying <laughs> yeah. by, by the transitive property of mathematics. I posted on threads that I was going to be interviewing you and uh, called for some questions. First question was, tell us about your CAN installation. People were really impressed with what you guys did at CAN. I want to hear what it was, and I want to hear how you calculated precisely the ROI of that investment. First of all, I'm on threads, but if I guess I had been on it more often, I would have seen that question and could prepare for it. Uh, is, your, so, is your handle like Dave Clark Photos or something like that? Well, you know, you have to import your Instagram profile. Okay, right? yeah. 
and like a lot of people, my Instagram profile is like from my friends and family and it's locked down and it's Dave Clark picks. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't sure that was you. So I didn't, I didn't add. Yeah. Everyone follow Dave Clark picks. On Twitter, I'm uh, Dave Clark, which sounds like a genius handle, but it's such a common name that I get every Dave Clark, <laughs> including the guy that was running Amazon. You know? Oh yeah. Right. Your question about can. Yeah. So, you know, we decided to sort of underscore like our differentiation is that we help advertisers with the creative and, you know, creative is half the impact of a campaign. And, you know, that's how we differentiate from other SSPs, right? So, which should be, and we're not the biggest company out there. So it's like, we decided to be really creative and get some attention. So we did a couple of things. One is that we had what we call an Imaginarium right on the Quasad. The French government decided to tear up the street in front of it like two weeks ahead of time. But still, it was, if you were there, it was hot, it was super windy, and it was a place for people to come in and have a lot of fun. And then I think probably the, the thing you're referring to is we hired a bunch of drummers and dancers who marched up and down the closet, just entertaining people all day, and the big crowds formed around it, and um, it was like street art. You know, it was just a fun thing to do, and as I went around the cocktail circuit at night, it got mentioned a lot, so I feel like it, you know, it was, there was some pretty good ROI there for a company like ours. We didn't have Skrillex on the beach. Two questions, Dave. So uh, really, you know, as, as a CEO, how do you think about the ROI of something like that? It's something that everybody, I feel like they struggle with unless they can assign like over time, you know, business impact, business uplift, you know, more clients spend. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a weird like attribution problem. How do, how do you think about it? Yeah, I think you can tie yourself in knots trying to answer the unanswerable question on this one. What matters here is, look, the, the industry, the entire ecosystem sort of gathers twice a year in a major way at CES and CAN. And if you prepare properly, which really means is your team prepared to have the right meetings and, you know, have you done your homework and you're going in, you can get a lot of ROI out of that event. I think in this remote world uh, where we're still, most companies are still partially remote, like it's very hard to fly to see your clients wherever they may be and get the whole senior team around the table because they're not fully back in the office or like, you know, they have, you fly to somebody's headquarters in Seattle or San Francisco and they have one executive that's living in Austin, Texas, and they're, they're zooming in. In can you can do that. Uh, CES, you can do that. That's really where the ROI is. I think the marketing is you know, it's such a noisy ecosystem. If you can just simply explain to people what you do, that's just a huge win. For us, it was really just more about getting attention, talking about drawing people in just so we could talk about triple lift audiences. I think it's, it's just really hard to do and can to kind of break through. Yeah. Well, look, people were talking about it, right? They, they asked Ari. Um, so uh, I think mission accomplished. Yeah. Practical question on on the business. So uh, you mentioned creative, like, and you know, you're constantly innovating our formats. Do you have like an in-house creative team at Triple Lift? Like, how are you helping brands maximize the investment in all these these cool formats? We do actually. You know, brands are creating their ads, of course, but native is because it's a what really is happening behind the scenes is it's a component based system. So we are plugging where we can, we're plugging into asset databases, SKU databases, and compiling an ad in real time. And then we have over 100,000 sort of custom-built 
custom sized ad units across the open web that have been sort of created together with publishers over a decade uh, that are non standard. And then, you know, we can sort of read the HTML of the web page and understand the style guide and put it all together so that it creates an ad that looks like it belongs there. It's not as, it's not intrusive, but it's attention getting and it creates, you know, just much higher click through rates, you know, 5X or more at least. But along that chain, even though that is all automated, you have some clients who want some hand-holding through that. They may actually want some creative touching work done, and we can do that too. So, you know, it gives us an opportunity to be more like a strategic partner with, with uh, brands. So one of the topics we've talked about a lot on this podcast is the collision between SSPs and DSPs uh, that's been going on with Trade Desk getting into the publisher side and, uh, and Magnite and Pubmatic, both having buy sides. But Triplelift has always had sort of a bidder and a buy side business as well, probably because the native ads are difficult to execute. Is that still an important part of your business? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's become increasingly important. We have been very careful to, you know, not jump on the resale bag wagon. We do a little bit, like with very carefully curated resellers, but most of our business is direct. We do have our own demand sales team and a lot of that is because we need to be out sort of explaining the value of of native, you know, but I don't think, I don't think if you talk to the trade desk or Google, I don't think any of them would think of us as competitive. You know, in fact, they're probably better fisheries. Yeah. One of the things I loved about the founders of TripleLift was that they just didn't respect boundaries between categories. They just did whatever they thought was interesting and could make money. And they came out of AppNexus with like a major chip on their shoulder with something to prove. And they did. It's funny that you say that because that's what I loved about them too. I mean, you know, the world was was kind of telling them that it wasn't going to work. It was one of those kind of classic stories. You know, I think, and they're like this to this day, and very good advisors for me, because they're like, you know, just stay focused on first principles of what matters for the publisher and the advertiser, and it'll all sort of work out. And once you start gaming the programmatic ecosystem, and you, that's when you start commodifying, and you see it impact your take rates, and you start to kind of like, it's like a war of attrition. The battle between supply and you know, sort of SSPs and TSPs is, is amusing, I think, but sort of like a natural next stage. Amusing. I'm not sure everyone finds it amusing. I think it, I guess I say that because, you know, how many times have we heard, without naming names, but like the, the CEOs of either like the major SSPs or TSPs say, we are one <laughs> just to just the demand side or just the supply side. And oh, by the way, one, being 100% committed to either side means pushing the other side out of the way so that I can build a direct connection to supply and demand, right? Which yeah. is a little bit like trying to thread a needle. Yeah, I still have a copy of the PDF of the Rubicon Manifesto. I put it up on Twitter at some point. So if you need a copy, let me know. Enough about Triple F. Let's talk about CTV because you are probably one of the world's experts on CTV, having done it for five years at, at Freewheel. So I kind of want to be sort of pretty open-ended, which is what are you seeing in CTV? Uh, tell us, give us your wisdom about what's going on in this marketplace. That's pretty open-ended. And listen, you and I work together at Freewheel. You, kn you know there are uh, people who have forgotten more about CTV there than I, I will ever. I put, um, work, uh, put worked in quotes, air quotes around work. It's funny. I would put air quotes in work too. <laughs> but, <we'd, laughs> but I think our expectations were aligned when you came in and beeswax. Bees, I will say beeswax was a brilliant acquisition for Freewheel. I'll be delivering your bag of cash later today. <laughs> I think it goes the other way around. So CTV, I mean, 
I don't know where to start. I, I think like I have always felt that there's a misunderstanding of like how CTV fundamentally works in the digital media industry. You know, people talk about CTV as like, oh, it's like the marriage of analog and digital or old media and new media. It's like, you know, it's like chocolate and the peanut butter kind of thing coming together. Like to some degree that's true. But I think what's less understood is that CTV is more a derivative of linear television in its fundamentals than it is of like open web programmatic advertising world. And like specifically, you have different supply demand dynamics. You know, there's a lot more power with suppliers in CTV than you have on the open web because it's a handful of companies that really dominate and you're in a supply-constrained world, it's hard to just like manufacture more supply in order to kind of make your numbers, right? And that kind of changes everything. I think if you, if there are, there's a long list, and we won't name names, but you know who they are. Like there's a long list of kind of companies that have been birthed out of like open web programmatic who have made plays in CTV and it hasn't gone well. And I think it's because they kind of fundamentally haven't understood that dynamic. And then really the need to respect you know, both sides of the table, of course, but you, you, you know, but I think those sets of companies come in already ex respecting the demand side, but having less respect for the power of the side. Right. So NBC and Discovery and the, those companies just control a huge amount of the quality CTV inventory. Um, you have, you have web-based video, which is often sold as CTV, but the quality stuff is really locked down. Exactly. I mean, NBC has, Huge market power. It's like, you know, I mean, like, I mean, YouTube, I mean, YouTube TV, you know, if you classify that as CTV, and I think you can, that's, you know, the law, that's the what, 40% or something. But then the next, you know, then it goes Hulu, it's Disney, it's NBC, not just Peacock, but like, you know, they have a lot of CTV outlets. Paramount, Pluto is part of that. It's Fox with Tubi, you know, it's Comcast with Zumo. Like, you know, it's, it's the big traditional media companies that have a lot of the inventory. Because that they're really setting the pace of, you know, how the industry sort of evolves. They have a lot more control over things. There are some problems with that too. It's much harder to get like standardization across these audience pools than, you know, it's not as simple as like Google coming in and just sort of like mandating how things are going to work, which I know I'm oversimplifying. But if you look at like measurement or, you know, advertisers would love to have like an identity layer that where the standard taxonomies across audience pools, it's very hard to do because, you know, the, the major publishers are in control of their data and, you know, want to be in control of their supply too. Right. So what is like, what's the conversation at a place like NBC or like NBC, not saying what they actually say, what, what do they say when they're thinking about how they should approach the programmatic enablement of CTV inventory? You know, at a simplest level, and I think first the thing to understand is like, NBC is, has become pretty sophisticated and they have one SSP free will and their, you know, umpteen DSPs at the trade desk at the top of the list. They have built a programmatic ecosystem. I think they are very careful about balancing their direct sold inventory with their programmatic inventory and, and even kind of letting it compete against each other. They are working really hard on making their linear inventory addressable and behave more like digital inventory and then combining that with their digital inventory and selling it as one audience pool. I mean, that that's really like, but it's, this is a long journey, but they sort of, you know, NBC sort of proclaimed a few years ago in their one 
2021 event that it's going to be, you're going to be able to come in and buy sort of like all NBC properties. And then I think like, then the next phase is, does NBC have enough market power that it could start representing smaller players that may be in decline and, you know, want to maximize their OPEX by sort of turning their sales over to a company like NBC that has a lot of market power. And they announced at Can this really interesting announcement that sounded like you can use NBC's platform to buy other freewheel supplier inventory. Instead of freewheel being like the center of a marketplace, uh, it sounded from that announcement, I don't know if you read it, that it was more like NBC becomes the center of the marketplace and you're accessing freewheel publishers. I did see that. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I don't have like clarity on exactly what that meant to right. you know, I just haven't been able to dig into the homework. But you know that like a big supporter of Free Will's acquisition of Beeswax was NBC because they wanted to see the bidder built into MRM so they could buy some. Right. MRM being the Free Will ad service. Ah, sorry. Right. I thought it was just because uh, Linda and I are BFFs. Yeah? No. Are you kidding? No, not after you moved over to the threads. <laughs> I know. But she's not following me on threads. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, <laughs> also, just an editorial note with the, one of the most popular videos on Architecture TV is my interview with Krishan Bajia, who was the president of NBC and has been uh, at the forefront of many of these these efforts. So you mentioned identity. Um, you know, the trade desk who we always talk about on the show is staking a pretty big part of their future on this idea that they're going to get UID2 adopted throughout the CTV ecosystem. Do you think that's going to happen? Area, I listen to architecture because I want to understand <laughs> if this is going to happen or not. <laughs> you know, like truly, I don't know. I mean, here there's like a bull and a bear case on this one, I think, and I don't know which one is uh, the bull case is that you know, trade desk brings a lot of demand to the table, and that means a lot of leverage. The bear case is what I said before: is that you have publishers who, like, they're never going to let go of control of their supply. And in the CTV world, that needs decisioning, right? So they're going to go carefully, I think. And there's some you know, big forecasts from the trade as to where that's going to be in a year from now or whatever. And I don't know if they're pacing towards that, but I think we're going to have to see. I think there's like a tension between those two things. We're playing this back. Um, you, you seem to be in the in the camp, and that's what we're worrying about, that, um, that it won't happen, right? Just given the supply sized leverage in, you know, controlling and, you know, sort of wanting, wanting to maximize their own yield. Yes. I, I really don't know, Eric, like this could be one of those things where CTV publishers really like trade desk, right? And where, you know, there's just, we're going through a process of like iteration of what, on, on what it is and how it works and the terms are on UID and the actual degree of openness that trade desk sort of provides those sorts of things. So to a point where it actually everybody's happy and we're just sort of like working through it now. I I don't have sort of pretty to what's in anybody's sort of head on and how they're thinking about it. But I do think, you know, again, as I've said, I think the big CTV publishers are going to go slow and are going to be super careful and they can be, they have a luxury of that. That makes sense. Not to bounce uh, around, you know, subtopics, um, you know, broadly CTV, but then identity back, back to formats. Given like how Triple Lift is, you know, so focused on innovating our formats, how CTV is inherently new, albeit supply side constrained, do, do you see a future where, you know, the typical 
six second, 15 second, 30 second goes away in CTV? And if, and if so, what, what do you think the format of the future looks like? You know, I think a lot about this, we're making investments, you know, in, in this, there was an interesting announcement with this great Roku. Um, we're going to definitely talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. But just, you know, you know, we're just sort of like sucking standard forever because it's scalable or, you know, things are going to flip and be completely different. No, I think it's all of the above. First of all, I think that yeah. anybody that anybody that tells you that the 30 second spot is dead is wrong. It's a beautiful thing. There was a book that came out like in the 2000s that said the 30, so 30 second spot was dead. So it's been, you know, 20 years of being wrong because look, I mean, it works. Consumers have said that they're, they're willing to put up with it in exchange for lower subscription fees. So there's a lot of voting going on there. It really works for brands. I don't know. I mean, you, I, Site Savage, I go on it. You know, I can tell my story in 30 seconds. It's a pretty powerful thing. And look, the industry has spent the last five or 10 years plowing a lot of capital into just getting the 30 second spot to work at a scalable way across the industry. There's still work to do. Like, we're still working on just measurement and some basic things. So I think, though, at the same time, what is also true is. Audiences in CTV environments are far less tolerant of interruption than they are in linear environments. It's a, that's a big driver over to IP environments. And for most streamers today, they're not profitable. They're losing money. And they have to sort of change up you know, revenue per user. And one way to do it is through innovate. There are a lot of ways to do it. But one way to do it is through innovative ad formats, which are less interruptive, can win you higher CPMs. But probably are married with 30 second spot that might be a pre roll or mid roll, kind of work together for the brand. In fact, a lot of the research says that where these innovative ad formats, like in Triple Lift's case, we can do like 3D or 2D product insertion or billboard insertion into the live stream itself programmatically. We just announced that with Peacock. But we also have a library of other kind of innovative squeeze backs and things like that. When you marry that with a standard pre roll or mid roll, is where it really works and sort of deliver the you're driving a little brand left. So I think it's kind of an all of the above thing. And if you, you know, if you listen to like what the Netflix team is saying, you know, like Greg Peters has been out talking about this and Peter Naylor and so on that, you know, where Netflix is going to differentiate in the ad market is on innovative ad formats because they can, you know, they're essentially like a total control over their audience data, the platform, the user interface and all that stuff. Yep. So I wanted to, if you'll just indulge me, um, a little trip down memory lane here, because the first time we met, um, you were at a company that probably most of the youngins listening to this have never heard of called Juiced. And I would, I would just love you to explain why did everyone care so much about Juiced when it, when it was out? Juiced was like the hottest company in the world for 10 minutes. It was. <laughs> so, let me, what? so what was Juiced first for those who don't know? Juice was kind of Hulu before Hulu. It, it was a company I sort of was like a quasi founder of, but the real founders were the founders of Skype and then Kazaa before that. So Juiced was a peer to peer video platform uh, that was started in like 2006. It was actually started before YouTube was sold to Google. And the state of video on the web at the time was like YouTube was capping videos at, at 11 minutes and they would stutter and buffer and they were like pixelated. And because of the peer to peer code that drove Skype, which was like real stress-tested scale peer-to-peer code, we could stream like movies in high def, right? I was like, what we ended up doing was sort of kind of following the iTunes playbook. And like, if we could build a platform where content, premium content creators could 
kind of list their content. And then we would pull it together into a single user interface, which at the time, the idea was to have it be completely ad supported, not subscription based. And a lot of these concepts about like innovative ad formats and what you can do with targeting and all that kind of stuff, like haven't changed one bit. Like it was part of the original <laughs> juice. We were in stealth for a while and I don't know, it just was such a big idea that when we came out of stealth, the world went nuts. And honestly, like I can tell you from the inside, it was like very hard for us to handle it. And there was a big hype cycle around the company. You know, back then you didn't have internet on planes and I would grab a bunch of magazines at like some you know, at the airport and read them and like, you know, like a startup, you like, you're lucky if you have like one article and you know, it's coming, I would flip through 10 magazines and read 10 articles about us. And I didn't even know that they, like, we were on the cover of Wired and all this kind of stuff. It was to say we had like venture capital firms cold calling or saying and people wanting to come work. It was, it was nuts. But by the way, that was also part of the problem. Like I can talk to you about, I think I probably learned more in my three year, the three years, it was three years that I was there. If I was there from the first day, to the last day, essentially when the 2009 market crash we ended up sort of selling it for scrap to Ed Conian. But after raising like over $100 million and, you know, being sort of a darling. I was just so awestruck trying to sell you an ad server. Um, and uh, I don't know if you, you ended up not using our ad server, I don't think. I can't remember. Well, this, the story um, for ad tech historians, Ari, is I was trying to, like, we tried to build our own ad server. That didn't work. I came to you to figure out if DoubleClick would work and was sorely disappointed because DoubleClick just wasn't ready for video, in particular premium video where you have like a middle yeah. and, you know, all this. And then somebody told me about uh, these guys that were working out of the Battery Ventures office in San Francisco named John Heller and Doug Knopper <laughs> and that I should go talk to them because they were working on something like this. So I flew out there and like on a whiteboard, John Heller, these, these two are the founders together with Diane Yu, CTO, all like StoveClick, right, of Freewheel. And uh, they were like, we've been looking forward to, to meeting you because we emailed you six months ago about coming and working at Juice and nobody responded. So uh, we went off and started this company. I was like, oh, you suckers. And uh, they went on to create Freewheel. And John went to the whiteboard and just explained what was different about premium video from an ad serving perspective. And just like in one fell soup, it just solved all of our problems. And we said, we want to be your kind of guinea pig trial. So we, we, we kind of didn't, do, we were their first client and developed sort of co-developed free will along the way that we were there. That's a good story. John loves yeah. a whiteboard. You can't, you can't even be in a room with him on a whiteboard without him using it. He's a big brain for sure. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break and do uh, the news of the week. All right. So this just dropped, you may not have read it yet, um, but it's very relevant to our conversation which is a press release from Freewheel that they and Roku have a partnership. It appears to be mostly an interop deal. So it appears to be that Roku demand is going to flow into the Freewheel ad server own marketplace and Freewheel ad server clients are going to be able to use Roku signals um, to target ads. But this is kind of a big deal. Uh, this is something that I think Dave, you and I talked about a bunch a couple of years ago. Any thoughts on this? I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, it is something we talked about. And, you know, the Freewheel's always had a good relationship with Roku, but, you know, a lot of their, they've built, they had, a, you know, built a lot of their ad stack in house. So I think this, this feels like a big breakthrough for both parties. Yeah. I mean, it helps to give, take the perspective of, say, a publisher like an NBC, where you have your own app on different platforms. And in some cases, those platforms have ad sales rights 
So Roku might have the ability to sell some ads in the NBC app on the Roku device. And that causes all kinds of integration headaches and complexities and conflicting ads and competitive exclusions and things like that. So this deal seems to take a big step to solve those problems. Yes. And, you know, that was sort of part of the magic of Free Will originally. It was understanding that you had this sort of like complexity of sales rights, uh, which are like, again, CTV is more derivative of TV. Like this is like legacy cable industry stuff, right? Where they're ad split. And, you know, I, I would say Roku's interest in this is supporting their publishers more, right? So right. they're essentially content suppliers are super important to them. And their content suppliers care a lot about that kind of integration and having control over the inventory that they are contractually obligated, you know, sort of titled to. And this will make it easier for them. And that will ultimately sort of, I think that benefit ultimately cruise back to Roku. Yeah, it's worth reading the full release for those interested in this stuff. Because there's a, there's a lot here. And I think to Ari's point, it's it's largely about sort of like interoperability. The one thing that's interesting here is there's um inventory quality. Oh, yeah. Where they're, yeah, they're, they're working with, um, with human security to, you know, hopefully minimize like invalid traffic and all that stuff that, you know, seems to be increasingly of concern for uh, for CTV. So uh, I think it's a good thing. It probably sort of like sets both companies ahead of the pack. Um, there's a lot of good stuff. It was like a clean room spin. There's a... Roku is definitely one of the most spoofed publisher platforms out there in CTV. The, yeah, you, there's tons of fake Roku inventory. So I think that's why they did this human deal like a year ago. Smart. Yeah, that's true. It just, and it largely just size their footprint, right? So this is great. While we're on video, um, there's continued fallout from the Google Video Network report from Adlytics. Um, so Adweek is reporting that many buyers are starting to turn off the network portions of their YouTube buys or doing other things to try to cut back on their off-network uh, video stuff. You think this is going to blow over? Maybe, Eric, you give it a shot. You, you think this is going to blow over or uh, like every other scandal? Or is this going to stick? I'll take the I'll take the over that that it blows over. I think there'll probably be some make goods, probably be some, you know, changes in terms of like the visibility of certain options and things go back. Because if you read this piece, it was a well-written piece and it was it was quite long. Um, you know, they talk about how there's varying percentages of buys that were going towards the video video network. Was it called GVP? Google video GVN? The, oh, still. Yeah. <laughs> read, read, read the article, right? So it's, it starts with, uh, you know, 90% of my ads were going, then it was, you know, low single digits, but, you know, it, it goes down and, and talks to a various, you know, subset of buyers. Um, and some of them were bemoaning how this is going to lead to degradation in performance. And if, you know, performance is the reason why a lot of buyers are, are, are using this combined network product, I think um, ultimately it ends up being figured out. But they, they have to get their handle around the really bad stuff that they've shown a light on. The, you know, MFA sites, the sound off autoplay, like all of that stuff needs to, yeah. needs to be addressed and addressed fast. So it blows over, but hopefully with some, you know, positive, uh, positive strides in the meantime. Dave, any thoughts on this? Totally agree. I think, uh, you know, the book I've gone around and asked around on this and I think people feel like, um, this is sort of manageable that Google's on it, frankly, and we'll get through it. All right. So last week, um, we when we spoke to uh, Nandini uh, from Check My Ads, we had a discussion about precise location data and how it was, you know, a major problem, but it could be anonymized. And this week, Massachusetts is the first state that's looking to totally ban the use of precise location data. So 
sale and usage of that for advertising, which is uh, pretty aggressive, but, you know, probably the right thing to do. Um, I, I'm going to kind of come out with my point of view um, that I've said previously, um, which is I think there's really no way to make precise location data safe. But it kind of speaks to what we talked about two weeks ago with uh, Alan Chappelle, which is the United States now has this incredibly complicated patchwork of rules and regulations that's very difficult to deal with. So uh, from a technical perspective, could companies just, you know, block Massachusetts? I feel like we talked about that with Alan as this, this could be a way that this, you know, ultimately happens. Like, you know, is it is it as simple as that if something like this happens? And then also... Can something like this happen on a state basis? Well, if you have precise location data, you can block Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. As you, the data you block, it's exactly it's possible. Would they actually do it? And would this at a whole, you know, unfortunately, Alan's not here. Does something like this um, happen on a on a state level? That's those are the two questions. Yeah, there are companies whose business models entirely precise long data, like. Um, 360, which is an application that a lot of parents use to keep track of their kids, their business model is entirely selling your location data. And uh, I, I guess it's relatively easy for them to just not sell any ads in Massachusetts, not collect any data in Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, that's going to make it harder and harder for people to comply with these things. Yeah. The government is a big customer of a lot of these businesses, too. So it's it's, true. it's an interesting Cash 22 position that, you know, this this just leads everything into. So uh, last topic. Adweek had an interesting article saying that ad tech jobs are cratering. Uh, so jobs are down 60%. New jobs, job listings are down 60% over the past year since June 22. You know, Eric, you have a portfolio full of companies hiring. Dave, uh, you're running a scaled ad tech business. I'd love to hear what you're seeing in the hiring market. Maybe Eric first. So I, I read the piece uh, and uh, I wish there were numbers rather than percentages. And right. Percentages. No numbers. Like I'd, I'd love to show no, no, no raw numbers. I remember at the peak, like TTD had you know something like six hundred bullpen <laughs> racks, and yeah, I was like tweeting about this stuff. It was it was it was pretty crazy. You know, with the unfortunate shutdown of Media Math, one of the things that we did was did a you know sort of like quick scrape across all the companies in the portfolio to create a database of you know uh, uh, jobs that we can connect um, relevant people to. So we have in the portfolio to. Open on pages, uh, 130 job openings. It's pretty interesting. You know, it's a wide variety of companies. As you can imagine, it's in the spaces that are growing fast. So it's like identity and, you know, sort of like MarTech and AI and, and CTV, so, so on and so forth. So there's companies hiring out there and um, they're, they're hiring a bunch of positions. It's just a matter of like, um, there's just less jobs open than there was. You heard it here. You just text Eric. Text his cell phone if you need a job in ad tech. So I'll give you the number. <laughs> uh, your number's out there, Fubble. My number's out there. Yeah. Uh, Dave, what are you saying? We're hiring and growing, but I think, look, generally 2021, 22 was like an insane, like 50 year peak of the industry. And there was just a ton of overbuilding in ad, in ad tech. And now I, I think that actually created a lot of like, diffusion of responsibility within companies. You just can't add people that quickly and be operationally efficient. And now the tide has sort of gone out and a lot of companies are you know, really just focusing on like cleaning that up and operational efficiency. And we're not alone and, and we're kind of like doing both at the same time as we kind of reorient our strategy. And then the other big trend is, you know, there's this like 
like the quality now. And, and I think a lot of the kind of more kind of point solution or commoditized companies out there that get themselves into trouble, like media math, you know, may kind of shake out of the ecosystem. And that's, that's going to create, you know, a tightening of roles and availability. But like, look, look, I mean, if you're talented in this industry, there's tons of opportunity for you. Is, is triple lift up or down on headcount since the private equity acquisition? Meaningfully up since the private equity acquisition, both because of the growth of the company and, and the acquisition of OnePlus X. Oh, right. right. Um, Plus X, yeah. But, you know, you can see this in the press, like, you know, we cut back in Q1 just to kind of like right-size the business because I think, you know, Tripleth wasn't alone in, you know, explosive growth in 20 and 21. Right. I'm sorry. One last question I forgot to ask you earlier, Dave. Uh, were you affected by the Media Math bankruptcy? Were you yeah. left holding the bag? We're working through that now. And, um, but yeah, we were like, it's all public. Right? We were like the seventh, sixth or seventh, sixth to y'all list. Yeah. I, I will say that uh, this is this is like the genius of uh, your friends, Eric Berry and company. that they saw they saw this coming like a long time ago and put a lot of kind of governors in place at Triple Lift so that when the day eventually came, we wouldn't be that, that exposed. Yeah. So, Are you going to claw back from publishers? We're debating that now. I think we're, we're, we're going to watch and see what the larger SSPs do and probably fall suit. And we're talking to our publishers right now. Um, there, there might be some like middle ground. All right. Uh, I guess what Gum Gum put out. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. And they'll, they get a lot of praise from publishers, quite frankly, but we're, I think we're probably talking about very different numbers. Yeah. They also have all that dental revenue to fall back on. You know, good, good to be diversified. All right. Uh, this was awesome. Look, threads. We got, we got to end on threads. Okay. Threads, threads. Are you still using threads, Eric? I'm playing around with it. Um, it's fun. It reminds me of the beginnings of Twitter. It reminds me of the, the uh, beginnings of, of social networking. Um, there's like, uh, you know, cool communities that are easily forming uh, on there around like interests. And uh, yeah, I, I give it a thumbs up so far. Dave? You know, my first reaction was it is so hard to create. It's like a, you know, a cold star problem, like, you know, creating a new, no matter how flawed Twitter may be, it's just so hard to recreate everything that's on there. So my first reaction was, you know, I think the story is going to be that threads just made Twitter better because they have some competition and now, now need it. But that's, then I saw like Elon's tweets this week and I was like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm on both and we'll see what happens. And, you know, I think everybody in the industry is rooting, rooting for Linda Agarino, right? So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of alternating posts, a little Twitter, a little Threads. Uh, threads I find more fun, and Twitter is more informative. Um, so uh, it's a little angry, but information makes people angry. <laughs> but yeah, you should follow me on uh, Threads. You should follow Dave as we discuss Eric, and also follow Mark Dexter TV. We after last week, I called out that people should follow Mark Dexter TV, and now we have like 50 followers. So that's a real great start. I encourage you to follow. All right, let's call it. So, Dave, thank you so much for being here. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, there is actually, a, by the way, a Triple Lift interview on Architecture TV where we go into some depth on on what the company is and what it does. So, I'd recommend watching that. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Architecture TV and your favorite podcasting app.